So what's the rating on this? What's the rating? Yeah. I spent too much time in New York. Yeah, you don't have to censor. Oh, I like it. It's for adults only. I was looking at my watch, and I was about to say, well, the time of death is. And But wait, they've got pulses. <laughs> and he continues to have pulses, has pulses today. So, Ginger, you are dispatched to a call. Um, you have two treatments. You can give them nitroglycerin or you can give them aspirin. Which are you going to give? I'm going to need more information. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This is the podcast I wish existed when I was in paramedic school. The idea is to give the listener a glimpse into how medics think, their mindset, how they approach calls, and how they fit being a medic into the rest of their life. If this is your first time listening to the show, I can tell you that there are basically two types of guests. The majority are what I call the medic next door. Under the condition of anonymity, they're able to share the intimate details of the job. The second type of guest are area experts whose identities are known. I've talked to Tanya Glenn about mental health and Michael Loria about performance under pressure. In this episode, we get a bit of both. He's a paramedic turned EMS medical director. This talk with Dr. Jeffrey Jarvis is clinically rich. Get ready to take notes because he packs a ton into this hour. You'll probably end up listening more than once, and I'll refer you to the show notes at medicmindset.com. Video laryngoscopy, ketamine, delayed sequence intubation, push-dose pressors, ultrasound, how he asks his medics to approach EKGs, and hang around till the end when he shares a bit about the challenges he faced as a medic. Let's jump in. So let's start with something just about you, and that is you're an avid runner, long-distance runner. Tell me about the running. When, what age did that start? Is that something that you did during paramedic school as a medic? Oh, God, no. Uh, I was a fat bastard all the way through fourth-year medical school. I'd lost a little weight in fourth-year medical school. I did the Atkins diet for a while and then gained it all back in residency. I turned 41 when I graduated from residency and said, all right, this, what was it, fat, dumb, and drunk? There's no way to go through life, son, whatever that uh, Animal House quote was. Yeah. It took me a while to realize that, and I said, all right, got to do something. So I started running, started riding. Uh, Jeff Hayes got me into cycling. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, did a couple centuries with him and then did some triathlons and then decided that that just took too much time to train for. So I've just stuck with running since then. Do you enjoy it or is it you have to make yourself go do it? Actually, I do like running because it's sort of me time. But it is also a uh, it's a lot like writing for me. I really enjoy having written. Right. And, you know, to get there, I've realized that, well, you have to write to have written. And if I want to enjoy publishing stuff i have to actually write it so if i want to enjoy the euphoric feeling i get from having run i have to run as with most things it's tough to get started but once you actually get out the door it's not that hard do you listen to podcasts while Mm -hmm. you run yeah almost exclusively so sometimes i'll like at the mile 20 on in a marathon i'll usually switch over to music you know some nice metal will get me to stop walking get my button gear again but early on i'll either listen to audiobooks um, I subscribe to Audible so I can listen to, to cool books, but I listen to a lot of podcasts. Well, you referenced that you like it when you're done writing. You authored a article in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. The title was EMS Intubation Improves with King Vision Video Laryngoscopy, and that was in 2015. 
Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about that? Can you summarize it? Absolutely. It turns out that intubation by EMS improves if you use the King Vision. <laughs> it's, That's a big statement. <laughs> well, I you would be surprised. It took me a long time to actually get that title in. Everybody wanted to – the hip, cool thing is, no, 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 you have to put it as a question. Oh, I don't want to put it as a question. I don't mm-hmm. want to bury the lead. Mm-hmm. I think our intubation success improved when we used the King Vision, so I'm going to title it EMS Intubation Improves the King Vision. So it was a uh, – a scientific summary of our experience. Right after I started, we looked at uh, intubation. I actually am a big proponent of intubating in the field. I don't think there's anything magical about the physiology between when a patient is in the field and when they come through the doors in my ER. So I sort of look at the patient in the ER and say, well, if I'm going to intubate them, as soon as they walk in the door, I'm going to intubate them. Those conditions didn't just happen. I mean, they existed in the field, so they probably should have been intubated in the field. That's not a universal belief among medical directors, but it's certainly how I feel. So I said, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it with all the tools that you need to maximize your chances of doing it correctly, and we're going to do it right, or we're not going to do it at all. This was at a time when the big thing was to go to superglottics only. Um, I'd like to say that thing is over with now, but it's probably not. That's probably still the hip cool thing for medical directors to inflict upon their uh, paramedics. But I, I just don't think that it's the, the right thing. I said, all right, well, let's, let's kind of look. So I walked around, hey, guys, are we good at intubating? How do we do? And of course, you know what the answer was. Oh, yeah. we're great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, me in particular, I'm really good. All right. So I'm one of those trust but verify people. So I said, well, let's look at the data. And what I realized is, first off, our data sucked. Uh, Not the results of the data, but the way we collected the data. If I would ask three people, what is an intubation attempt, I would get five different answers. If you're going to look at data, you have to have an objective definition. So we defined it, and there is an answer out there in the literature. Um, An intubation attempt is when the blade passes the teeth. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can hear people out there cringing right now. This is the definition. But that's going to mean that I missed Well, welcome to the real world. Anybody who tells you they've never missed an intubation, either, number one, hasn't intubated very many people, or two, is lying to you. Mm -hmm. And I got some money on that it's probably number two. Everybody misses an intubation. It's not the end of the world. That's the reason that we're looking what the overall rate is, not individual medic rates. And so we standardized on a clear definition, and then we figured out that Oops, our first pass success rate was around 43%. And in any planet, 43% first pass success rate sucks pretty bad. I believe strongly that if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. And 43% is not right. There is a fair amount of literature out there that says the number of adverse events goes up. It's not linear. It's more of an exponential rate with each additional intubation attempt. Uh, John Seckles has a great paper essentially saying first pass attempt or first pass success needs to be your your goal. And if I remember some of the data off the top of my head, if you look at all adverse events, and hypoxia, by the way, is the number one event by far, the most common, but your overall rate of adverse events is about 9% with one attempt. So about 9% of first pass successes have an adverse event. And again, the majority of that is hypoxia. If you go to two attempts, adverse events goes up to around 47%. So almost half of patients who have a second attempt have an adverse event. And the overwhelming, overwhelming amount of that is peri-intubation hypoxia. 
peri-intubation hypoxia is bad. We found that out the hard way because we did our best to kill someone. We put them into cardiac arrest. We got pulses back, but they still didn't do well, and that was because we didn't do intubation well. And I want to be really clear when I say we didn't do it because I own that as much as the medic on the truck did. They're good medics. I would still trust them to take care of my family. So we just didn't have the right perspective on how to do it. Going back to that particular paper, we looked at a couple of different options. What can we do to improve our intubation success? At the time, I had switched over almost exclusively to video laryngoscopy in the emergency department. And this is after I'd been intubating for probably by that time 14, 15 years using direct laryngoscopy. And like most paramedics, I would say that I was very good at it. Now, I never looked at my objective data because I wasn't in a position to do that. Um, But I would guess it was like everybody else. It probably wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. But I had switched, and I thought it had a lot of advantages. So we looked at a couple different devices. We looked at a GlideScope, which is what I was using. We looked at the Kingvision. We looked at an AirTrack. We looked at a CMAC. I don't think we looked at the McGrath because I don't think the McGrath was out then. Oh, and a Vivid Track. And uh, took some new hires up to a Cadaver Lab. We did it on Cadavers. We did it on Mannequins. Ultimately, we decided on the King Vision. So we did a bunch of training, and our first pass success went from 43% to 74-ish percent. Based on some research I'm doing now and what the literature says, overall first pass success rate uh, for paramedics is somewhere around 70, between 70 and 75%. So that got us up to roughly the range where the rest of EMS is. Still not good enough for me. If you look at what the first pass success rate is in the hospital among emergency medicine residents, and you can quibble with that, but most of this research is going to be at an academic facility, it's around 90%. If you look at first pass success rate with anesthesia in the OR, it's around 97 to 98%. Um, obviously different populations, a lot of differences there. It's easy for us to say, well, if anesthesia had to intubate upside down in a car, their rate would be lower too. My answer to you is that they wouldn't do it. The reason that they are so good at it is they make, they change the circumstances so that they'll succeed. We don't do that. Um, we should, but we don't. So since then, we've continued to work on improving our intubation, and now our intubation success is anywhere, uh, first pass success is uh, somewhere between roughly 88 to 92, depending on the month. Uh, Do you allow for your medics to do direct laryngoscopy? No. Nope. Took it off the truck. I had this uh, discussion with uh, Min Lekong, an Australian who I think is just by definition argumentative. So I think the whole reason he had me on this podcast is so he can make fun of Texas and make fun of my approach to video laryngoscopy. But what I said is I I look at the the population of EMS intubations, not a sample of them. I'm looking at the population. What I find is we are demonstrably better with video laryngoscopy than we are with direct laryngoscopy. So yeah, well, but what if? I'm like, we are dealing with paramedics who, as good as they are, and I will put the the medics in the two systems I work for up against uh, any medics anywhere, we still have limited opportunity to intubate. We don't have enough experience or opportunity to maintain that experience to maintain competence in two devices. I'm going to pick the one we're best with. So I ask very politely, guys, here's the data. We are better with the King Vision than we are with DL. Please don't use DL. Maybe there's a circumstance somewhere, this rare thing that everybody tells me about, so I'm going to leave it on the truck. That rare thing wasn't so rare, and it turned out not to be rare among paramedics who were experienced with DL. 
And if you looked at their success with DL versus VL, they were still better with VL. They just didn't know it. I asked nicely again, and it still happened, so I removed the opportunity to be ignored. Just off the truck. That's also interesting to me. Just to be clear, though, you can be... You can also abuse that um, as a medical director. So I think if you're going to do it, it really needs to be based on objective evidence. And we just had some really clear objective evidence that we were better mm-hmm. with VL than DL. And that's because you measured yourself, which is great. Is there anything else that you guys are measuring? I'd say there are probably about 25 to 30 clinical metrics. We also have some operational metrics we're looking at. Clinical metrics, just off the top of my head, we look at first pass success. We look at first pass success without hypotension or hypoxia. We do measure overall success uh, just because it's so easy, but first pass success without hypoxia, hypotension is the main one we look at. Um, we look at adverse events. We look at the use of ketamine for violent patients. So if we have a patient who is an imminent threat to themselves or others, we hit the off switch with ketamine, but then we also put them on our strain board. So it's not appropriate to give the sedation, the chemical sedation without following it up with physical restraint. And it's also, it's particularly not appropriate, and this is even a bigger don't do, to physically restrain someone without chemically restraining them. So we look at every ketamine administration uh, that's within the correct dose range because we use ketamine for a lot of things. Uh, And we look at every time we gave, I'll call it an excited delirium dose, but we use it for other things. But the five milligram per kilogram IM dose, did we uh, restrain them? So, and of the patients we restrained, did they get chemical restraint? So that's one thing we look at. We look at uh, acute decompensated heart failure. So these are patients that the medic diagnosed as having CHF, but also had a systolic blood pressure greater than 200 and either a respiratory rate greater than 30 or a pulse ox less than uh, 90. So a sick population, not somebody that just needs to have their Lasix titrated. So this is a, a sick, sick patient who is suffering from an acute hypertensive crisis. Of that population, how many got uh, nitroglycerin and CPAP. Obviously, the cardiac arrest survival rates, the the CARES and Utstein stuff, a bundle of care for ACS patients, uh, aspirin and 12-lead. For any patient with non-traumatic chest pain greater than 35 years old, we look at did we do stroke alerts for uh, patients who meet our criteria of the patients with a stroke alert? How many did we actually document the stroke scale and last known well? Did we check a blood sugar? Um, Are we getting weights on pediatric patients? Lots of stuff like that. Yeah. That takes a lot of human resources to... It does. Yeah. Yeah. No, it absolutely does. We're, um, you know, at my uh, Williamson County job, I'm really lucky. Uh, The commissioners who are the ones who write the checks um, have been very supportive of us. So we have uh, quite a few people who, who help us do that. So this is a bit of a philosophical question. My medical director, when I was in the field, when we were considering new treatment modalities... She would say that she didn't want to be the first or the last to do uh, a new procedure or you know, try a new med. Mm-hmm. Um, how does your philosophy compare to that? So I know her. Um, I actually took over for her uh, in a system. She's very smart, and I agree with her, except I don't always do that. Um, so I think it's very dependent on what the, the subject matter is. Delayed sequence intubation is probably a good example. That seems to be, especially on social media or foam. That's uh, the really hot topic. Everybody wants to go do it. I know of one flight service that was doing it, and that was about it. I'm sure there were others, but that was the one I knew about. And then we had a 
uh, case here, I think I mentioned it earlier, where we really hurt somebody uh, badly. I said, that's it. We have to do this now. I don't care if anybody else is doing it. We'll be on the cutting, bleeding edge of it, but we're going to implement this. Now, if we implement it and it doesn't work, well, then we'll continue to evaluate it and we'll punch out or tweak it or or do something else. But uh, there, I think we had a clear and present danger. Uh, we had documented evidence that said it wasn't a one-off event. And there was something that I thought had low risk, high reward, so we implemented it. Um, as far as the last, let's say the use of vitamin C and IV acetaminophen for sepsis, I'll probably be the last one to adopt that. Um, I better see a whole lot more evidence that says that works because I'm pretty skeptical of it right now. I need some historical perspective here. Is DSI was the first, the first time I heard about it was on MCRIT. Is that where it started? Yeah. Well, no. The, uh, the phrase. The word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came up with a phrase. Scott's good at bundling things together, and he's a great teacher. DSI is just a way of taking care of preoxygenation. The way he refers to it is for a subset of patients that you need to intubate, but they are so agitated, usually because they're hypoxic, mm-hmm. that you can't adequately do the things you need to do to pre-oxygenate them. So he talks about it in terms of procedural sedation where the procedure is pre-oxygenation. Well, if you don't have to sedate them to pre-oxygenate them, then there's no point. Mm-hmm. That's not how we do it. When we say DSI, what we're really referring to is a bundle of care. And the bundle of care includes pre-oxygenation. It also includes not intubating hypoxic or hypotensive patients. We use the phrase DSI as a catch-all. Um, he doesn't. He's specifically talking about chilling him the hell out, them, with ketamine, uh, but allowing them to continue breathing so that you can adequately pre-oxygenate. Then once you've hit your three minutes of pre-oxygenation, the amount of time it takes for nitrogen washout, then you can go ahead and push your paralytic and go on down the road. And Anesthesia has been doing that for decades. And you've said hypoxia probably 10 times, but only hypotension a couple of times. Sort um, of a mouthful. It's uh, <laughs> I, I want to say like H and H, and then yeah. people think I'm talking about hemoglobin hematocrit. Um, <laughs> Regarding the hypotension, and I'm getting yeah. a little specific here, but I'm mm-hmm. curious if I put a hypotensive patient in front of you, think of um, internally bleeding, you know, multi-system trauma patient, what is the mechanism that you would increase their blood pressure in order to prepare them for intubation? Well, it depends on how quickly I need to intubate them. Again, let's go back to where are they bleeding? So is this a traumatic brain injury? Is this a splenic lack? Overall, what they need is blood. Uh, and they're going to clearly do best with blood, blood products. As I pat myself down, I don't have any of that uh, in the back of the truck. So that's not an option. Let's just deal with that right up front. That's not an option. Okay, well, they also need some preload. Well, we do have some things that can help with preloads. So some, give them some fluids. Now, fluids come with a cost. Obviously, you're watering down their um, the vasculature, normal saline, or lactated ringers. We know doesn't carry oxygen at all, uh, but it can increase your preload and transiently increase your blood pressure. But it takes time. So if I need to do the airway now, I'm going to go back to MGRIT and I'm going to scarf uh, epinephrine. So we just do push dose epi. Awesome. That's what I wanted to hear uh, or to pick out of you. Push dose epi is not always the right answer. In the emergency department, if I have the, the classic case that's come into mind is AFib RVR that's hypotensive. So if I want to get fancy, now the truth is you shouldn't get fancy at all. You should treat them with uh, ketamine. 
You're saying, well, ketamine doesn't deal with AFib-RVR. No, but it allows you to shock them, and that's what you should probably do because, truthfully, uh, cardioversion is probably a lot more safe than any of the drugs we're giving. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say I wanted to get fancy. Their push-dose epi is probably not the wise thing to do. Um, use something like phenylephrine. But in the field, we really need to pick our agents and not have a whole bunch of different agents for the same job because you're adding complexity to a system where you're just not going to use it very often, right? and therefore you're going to screw it up. So talking about systems, I am particularly interested in medical errors and how uh, healthcare responds to those medical errors. This is one of the main things I wanted to hear from you, because I've talked to medics that work within your systems, and mm-hmm. they, as far as I can tell, they are very willing to share when they've made an error, because mm-hmm. um, yeah. they feel like they're in an environment where the point of sharing that is to make the system better and that they wouldn't be certainly not be punished for making errors that were in the context of good intentions. Sure. How have you worked to create what many have called a just culture? You bet. So there are a lot of books uh, written about just culture. Um, I've seen the titles of those books. One of the great ones is is Whack-A-Mole, which is just, I just love the, the concept there. And that's a nice, short, quick read. The author of it came and talked at NAMSP one year. I've skimmed through some of the Just Culture books. But allow me to summarize, if you want to, to run an organization with a Just Culture, um, allow me to summarize. Don't be a dick. It really comes down to... Um, I think just kind of do the stuff that your mama should have taught you how to do. Right. So be nice. That's a little bit oversimplifying. The true thing behind a just culture is to understand that there are different types of errors. There is the error where you have a medic who comes to work impaired. And not surprisingly, they give, I don't know, let's say they give uh, rocuronium instead of ketamine. Okay, well, that's a pretty big oh shit moment. Someone is going to be hurt from that. But it doesn't matter whether they got hurt or not. There was clearly an error, and the error was, I'm going to say intentional, because they chose to come to work impaired. So that's a one-shot, one-kill, you're gone. Um, So a just culture doesn't mean there's no accountability. In most organizations where this has been studied, that is really the minority of errors. Most people don't come to work drunk. Most people don't take a pillow and hold it over their patients' heads. If that happens, I think everybody would agree. The truth is, is I don't get involved in those. Um, it doesn't come anywhere near me. Um, everybody involved says that person needs to be fired. Now, the rest of the errors you can break down into, if you actually look at why they happened, some errors occur because of a knowledge gap. Okay, so the medic didn't know that you shouldn't push calcium uh, chloride and sodium bicarb in the same line without flushing it. And now they had this IV that looks like concrete. Well, so that's a knowledge gap error. You also have errors where, let's say that you, uh, Dennis Quaid, heparin situation comes up where Dennis Quaid has, I think I got the right Quaid there, one of those brothers, um, had a child in the ICU yeah, who was getting Dennis heparin. Quaid, it was Dennis yeah. Good. Um, who's getting heparin. Well, there are a lot of different versions of heparin concentrations and doses, and they look alike, and the kid had an order of magnitude drug overdose. Well, that's because it is so, the system made it so easy to make that error that it happens over and over and over again. One of the errors that we've noticed in our system is uh, mixing up push-dose epinephrine and uh, 
diluting down ketamine, which is kind of ironic because the reason we picked the the concentrations of ketamine to carry that we do, we only have one. And the reason that I only have one is I wanted to avoid medical errors. Well, in the process of doing that, um, so for example, we have a 500 milligram vial of ketamine, 50 milligrams per milliliter. And we give ketamine at five milligrams per kilogram IM for pissed off people. We give it two milligrams per kilogram IV for induction. And then we give 10 milligrams, not per kilogram at all, just 10 milligrams titrated for pain. Well, 50 milligrams per milliliter, go ahead and give 10 milligrams of that. That's kind of a challenge. So we dilute it down. Well, it turns out that that is an invitation for error. Well, and we made a few of them. So now we're going to um, have different concentrations. And it's interesting. So uh, Dr. Antevi has – he's so polite and he's such a nice guy. But I can tell he just wants to shoot me for only having one concentration of ketamine. I really worry about having multiple concentrations and grabbing the wrong one. So what we now do is we package – or we're in the process of changing this – uh, we have three packages of ketamine, and the ketamine actually comes in the package that has a label on it. So this will be analgesia sedation ketamine. It'll be intubation ketamine. It'll be pissed off person ketamine. And there's a little checklist on there that tells you how to draw it up, what the dosings are, um, and it has everything you need to draw it up. Once we do that, I'm okay having different concentrations. The idea is we created and by we, I mean I, created a, a situation where it's really hard to give the 10 milligrams and it's easy to screw it up. So that's a systematic problem. It's not an individual error unless, you know, the individual is me, meaning I, I created that. Then you also have errors, um, and we did the same thing with epinephrine, by the way. Uh, as we're drawing up push-dose epi, we also just from a timing standpoint, ran out of epinephrine for 1 to 10,000 cardiac arrest epinephrine. So we had to dilute that down too. And we just, it was an opportunity for error. So we had right. to look at from a systematic way, what can we do to, to minimize that? Let me interject one, one question yeah. there. And that is, you became aware of these errors because the medics reported it to you? Absolutely. Yeah. This system would not work at all without voluntary error reporting. You're absolutely right. Do they send you a little email? They call you? How does it work? So all of the above, but we do have a process for doing it. And I, I, there are some error reporting organizations out there. We don't use any of them. I would like to, but we just haven't quite gotten there yet. So we have an online form uh, that they fill out as a way of doing that, and it goes through some, some workflows. And then we also have a sort of a designated person for the shift that they call and say, hey, there's a clinical stop sign. Um, this happened. Well, let's say it's one of those mixing it up wrong things at yeah. three in the morning. Yep. Well, and, that, and because that's really important. So you mix a drug up wrong at three in the morning when you've done three back-to-back shifts. Okay. So boy, there are a lot of things that could go wrong with that. First off, the traditional way of dealing with that response is to say, well, the problem is a bad medic. I'm going to whack that mole. Mm -hmm. And you just say, well, you're fired. There. Problem solved. Well, it's really easy and it feels good. And you can say, boy, I'm tough. It's kind of like a tough on crime thing. It feels good, yeah. but it turns out it doesn't do anything to actually address the probability that this happens again. So you need to actually look into it and try to determine what the root causes are. 
that particular circumstance, oh boy, there are so many ways that you can you can do it. We know that going without sleep for 24 hours is roughly equivalent to a, a legally drunk blood alcohol level. Let's say you're in a system where you work three 24s in a row and you ran a bunch of calls and basically you're going on 12 hours of sleep across 36 hours. Okay, well, you can do whatever you want to with the medications. That ain't the problem. <laughs> yeah. So you need to address what the root issue is. So deal with your, your system structure so that you make sure that people um, – the system is encouraging people to get proper amounts of sleep and certainly not hindering them. And how do you communicate what you're communicating now? They're going to hear it in a podcast. But mm-hmm. how have you over time communicated to your medics like, hey, we've got your back. When you report these things, we may re-educate, but there's no punishment here. Uh, Primarily by doing it. It's a whole lot easier for people to believe you when they see you doing it rather than hearing. I don't talk about just culture a whole lot. It's not one of the things I lecture on. Um, Honestly, it kind of bores me. Um, It just, to me, seems intrinsically like the right thing to do. One reason that um, we haven't spoken a lot about it is you know, I came into an organization that I think already embraced that. There wasn't a huge fear of getting your head cut off or doing something wrong. If I were to come in into a different system that clearly that was the response, then I would probably be saying just culture every third word. But right. I'm just really lucky. That wasn't the situation that I came into. The way that I reinforce it, though, is um i the first pass success is a great example everyone knew i was very focused on that we did lots and lots of training we would release the metrics so every month people would see where the metrics are Um, people would know when i'm unhappy when our overall success rate drops but every time i talk to somebody i'm like look i want to take every shift track where we get all the medics in i want to see a show of hands show me everyone who i have yelled at for missing an intubation raise your hand oh nobody you're right. I don't, and I don't calculate individual success rates, and I intentionally don't do that. Turns out, from a programmatic standpoint, it's just as easy to do that as anything else. But I think it's a little less productive. Mm-hmm. Medics are very interested in it. I get that. I mean, I w- I would love to work in an environment where I got what my success rates were. I don't. Um, so I, I think it can be useful, but I don't want to put it out because I'm very afraid of the message that it would send. And it may change how they report the data and oh, no doubt. so many things. So you, you were probably heading this way, and I distracted you earlier, when you ask, how do you find out about these? Yeah. So if I cut people's head, heads off when they reported an error, we don't hire stupid people. They're not going to report the errors. <laughs> well, and then I'm not going to know what the errors are, and we won't do anything. So if my sole approach to problem solving is head cutting, well, then the problems do go away. Because, you know, I cut two heads off. People are smart. They don't report the errors anymore. And if they don't report them, therefore, they don't happen. Right. Which is great unless you're the patient. Right. Great on paper. Yeah. Only. Not, not so much for the patients. If you could handpick every medic that works with you, mm-hmm. what qualities would they all have in common? I'm interested in hearing a medical director's perspective because you're, you don't have to worry about all the employee kind of stuff you can just truly look at them as clinicians absolutely so from a clinician point of view or from a medical director's point of view Mm -hmm. 
What I would want is, fortunately, it's what I actually get. Um, And it's from a different perspective because all those painful processes that I don't want to be involved in, um, I, I have this conversation with our hiring team all the time that I don't like the way we do this. But I'm also sort of a data guy. And I see the results. I see the people that make it through the process. Like, look, I may not like the process, but it's working. So I'm going to shut the hell up because mm-hmm. um, I like the product. So what do we get? We get really smart people. We get people who are compassionate, who can communicate well. And I don't want to strangle if I'm stuck in a room with them for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. People with nice personalities that I, I that are engaging, that you want to work with, that's what I would want. So it's interesting because people, a lot of folks will say, well, about medical school, they know I'm a paramedic who went to medical school, and they'll say, well, I'm thinking about it, but I just don't think I'm smart enough. Okay, bullshit. Smart is such a, a overrated term. Smart is way more motivation than it is anything else. There are some people with cognitive uh, disabilities that probably don't have the, the horsepower. Almost everybody else does. It's a function of whether you are... Um, focused enough. So I would want someone who is focused enough, is willing to show up every day, put in the work it takes to learn, because learning is work. So you're really well known for your work with video laryngoscopy. And I'm curious, how did you choose to emphasize that over, you know, some other more common complaint? Well, so we probably misdiagnose ankle fractures. We probably call an ankle dislocation. Well, I don't know about that. An ankle dislocation is fairly obvious. But <laughs> let's say that we um, – oh, abdominal pain. This is a perfect one. We'll probably say this person has appendicitis and they really have teflitis or they have cholecystitis or they have any other itises. Well, if you take a close look in the back of your ambulance, you probably don't have a CAT scanner. And if you do, I'm sorry, you're working in that system. We don't have that diagnostic ability. So, okay, so if you miss that diagnosis, I don't care. Did you still treat their pain? Did you support their vital signs? Did you get them to a place that can diagnose them? The potential for harm and the benefit of focusing on that problem is just not that high. If you miss an IV... Uh, so we were going through CAS accreditation, and I was meeting with the medical director during the, the site visit, and he said, I was showing him all of our airway research, and he said, well, that's that's nice, but what's your IV success rate? And I said, well, I don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> probably shouldn't have said that. But I, I don't. There's no consequence to that. We can kill people, and we have with airway. So it's a, it's a low-frequency, high consequence. Uh, so that's the reason we focused on that. Yeah, that makes sense. You came and spoke at our pinning ceremony, our graduation ceremony, and you talked about ultrasound. What are you guys doing with ultrasound? Not a thing. You were looking at it, We yeah? were. It was a study. There are a lot of things I would be doing with ultrasound. Ultrasounds are not cheap. Yeah. Um, so that it's purely a, a financial problem. We don't have the resources to put uh, ultrasound on the trucks right now. We had the opportunity to participate in a study. Some ultrasounds came with a study. Sweet. Let's let's put them out there and see what we can do. Mm-hmm. That was the the situation. We're not doing anything. If we had ultrasounds, if for some reason I were I woke up tomorrow with Bill Gates kind of money, we would have an ultrasound on every truck. Uh, we would use it for termination. I had a termination. Well, a pseudo termination. Witnessed V-fib arrest in a young guy. She was in V-fib for probably twenty minutes, then it went into an asystolic PEA for the next 30 minutes doing all the normal things had a lot of hematemesis patient got intubated entitles were in the 40s but 40 minutes of an entitled co2 of 40 means nothing there's no 
prognostic value anymore. And we were going through it. I'm like, man, this this sucks. 30 years old. He's young. But there's nothing left for us to do. So I was looking at my watch, and I was about to say, well, the time of death is. And But wait, they've got pulses. <laughs> and he continues to have pulses, has pulses today. Mm. Um, Where does ultrasound fit? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, I was I, waiting I, to see if there's ultrasound on that call or not. are you going to come <laughs> back to this? Yes. And as I'm sitting here thinking – well, I'm about to give you time of death because I don't know what to make of this PEA. In 40 minutes, 50 minutes is bad. What I really, really, really wanted was for Kevin to be able to slap an ultrasound on and say there's no cardiac wall motion. Mm-hmm. Um, or there's a great big pericardial effusion. Why don't we stick a needle in it? Or there's right ventricular collapse or, or any of those other things that you can get very quickly and easily from an ultrasound that can guide your therapy. Obviously, we could use it for starting IVs. You have pregnant patients. This isn't going to change our treatment much, but it is a real crowd pleaser. Moms really like that. Slap the ultrasound on. You can see baby moving around. Mm-hmm. Mom's very, uh, very reassured. Hypotension, pneumothoraces, uh, a whole bunch of things that you can do with uh, ultrasounds. But the main thing we would be doing with it uh, that I really want on a almost a daily basis is I want to see what the heart's doing before I call it. Yeah, And we just don't have it. Would it be too hard to just ask you to comment on general thought processes when approaching patients and forming differentials? Not Is that at too all. broad? No, I think I could deal with that. So I think it's important for us to think about how we think, sort of a metacognition thing. We go through paramedic school and we're taught these are the questions we're supposed to ask. Okay, so we memorize that because we know it's going to be on a test. And then we get into the field and we realize that we'd better ask those questions because we have to put it in our documentation. So we're, the only reason we're asking those questions is because we think we have to. It's not guiding our treatment. We're not doing anything different based on those answers. Okay, well, there's no – if the questions you're asking aren't changing what you're doing, then it's pointless. Every question you ask is a test. You are administering a test just like if you were to do an EKG or a blood glucose. It's a test. The catch is you probably ought to know why you're ordering a test. So if I order a complete blood count, why am I doing that? For the most part, I do it because if the hemoglobin is below seven, I'm going to give blood. Um, you know, if this, then that. So we have to understand what we're going to do with the uh, test question. History taking is exactly like administering tests. So you need to understand why you're asking the damn questions. So why do we ask questions of patients? Well, we do it for two reasons. One, we are uh, – language is how humans establish a personal connection. So we're doing that. That's a humanity issue, uh, and that's incredibly important. That's the reason we get down at eye level and we change our tone. That That's all very important. But the specific questions we're asking is because we're forming a differential diagnosis. Now, you may not know it, um, but you are. So, Ginger, you are dispatched to a call. Um, you have two treatments. You can give them nitroglycerin or you can give them aspirin. Which are you going to give? I'm going to need more information. Oh, interesting. So you're probably going to ask some questions. The reason that you're asking the questions is to guide your therapy. So what you're doing is you're forming a differential. So if I say you are taking care of a patient with a cough, okay, well, immediately you, you start to form a differential diagnosis. So if you ask me what are the top causes of cough first i want to know are we talking about kids or are we talking about adults let's talk about adults all right so i know the odds are here that we're talking about um, an infectious process of say pneumonia 
Uh, it could be congestive heart failure. It could be COPD or some form of bronchospasm. Uh, it could be acid reflux. That's a really high one. Um, the other big thing is medication reaction. So all the ACE inhibitors, lisinopril. Just based on a chief complaint of cough, I already have a differential. Well, now I need to narrow that differential down. So differential diagnosis is just a list of potential candidates for what your ultimate diagnosis is. And I, I'm a sci-fi geek. Um, I like science fiction. And the original Terminator, there was a scene in there where Arnie has half his face blown off and he's looking in a mirror. And you see his face from his perspective and you see all this green up there and these lists of text are just scrolling through um, in his little heads up internal heads up display so i think about a differential diagnosis as my own internal heads up display you say cough these things pop up no particular order they're just up there and that's not really true there they there is an order i mean pulmonary fibrosis could be on there but that's pretty limited so it'd be way down at the bottom so I'm going to ask you some questions, and based on the answers to those questions, I'm going to reorder my differential diagnosis. So are you running a fever? Fever is kind of important. Why, yes, I am. So pneumonia goes way up to the top, and other things go down to the bottom. No, I don't have a fever. Well, are you having shortness of breath? Well, no, I'm not having shortness of breath. Interesting. Okay, are you on any medications? Well, yeah, I take some blood pressure medicines. Okay, so an ACE inhibitor cough goes way up on my, my list. From a, a thinking about things, that's how you go into forming your differential diagnosis. The other things you have to understand is how valuable is an answer to that question. Really, now we truly jump off into evidence-based medicine. You start talking about likelihood ratios. Mm-hmm. A physical exam, for example. I'm worried that this patient has meningitis. What is the single best test I can do from a... Um, physical exam. So let's say we're not going to look at CSF. What's the best test I can do to determine whether this patient has meningitis? Well, what I'd like to know is what is the likelihood ratio of every test? There's a series of articles that's been published in JAMA for the last 20 years called the Rational Clinical Exam. And I'm just in love with this series of articles because it, it tackles that. So what is the value of a normal white blood cell count in diagnosing appendicitis. Well, I'll tell you right now, it's shit. It it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Well, it turns out the best thing you can do, and this is something you can do in the back of an ambulance, you have a kid uh, with a fever and mom is worried they have meningitis. Hey, kiddo, can you do jumping jacks? If they can jump up and down and do jumping jacks, it is highly unlikely to be meningitis or for that matter, appendicitis Mm -hmm. or any peritonitis type thing. And the reason that's actually not called jump injection, it's called jolt attenuation. And it has a uh, really nice likelihood ratio, which has the ability to dramatically change your post-test probability from your pre-test probability. So those concepts, um, you can really nerd out and get a calculator out and do them. Nobody does that in real time. When we talk about pretest and post-test probability for coming up with a diagnosis, it's not because anybody expects you to do this math, although you can. It's a gestalt. So that's the thought process that I use and I think most physicians use when they're coming to a diagnosis and they're actually asking uh, questions. The thing that looking back on my practice as a paramedic, certainly when I was an EMT, that was not my thought process. My thought process was, okay, OP occurs at O is onset. How long ago did this happen? And I'm not thinking about the answer in terms of changing what I do or what my diagnostic probability is. I'm just asking them because I think, you know, 
my instructor told me I was supposed Laura Kitzmiller, my EMT instructor, told me I was supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. Kids was a smart lady. I probably ought to do what she tells me to do. But I didn't understand why. And I think that's where most people start is that they don't even know what they're supposed to be doing. And once they figure out what they're supposed to be doing, then they can start interpreting the information they get back from the patient. It's really interesting to hear you talk about numbers because I have these what I call illness scripts in my mind where if you say pediatric meningitis, I've got, you know, five little bullet points of things, clinical findings. But I wouldn't, haven't gone to the step where I know specificity and sensitivity of those tests, right? Mm -hmm. I just know the script, but I I don't really know which ones are like more strongly correlated with. That sounds like the next step. Yeah. So my recommendations to you would be look into the JAMA Rational Clinical mm-hmm. Exam. Um, I love them. And um, there's also a good exa- uh, good article uh, that I'll give you on likelihood ratios and how to convert the hardcore nerdy math to something that makes a lot more sense from mm-hmm. a clinical use at the bedside. Right. You guys have some awesome YouTube videos. They're very well produced and just chock full. I'm going to link to them in the show notes. When you first started talking about making YouTube videos, did you get any pushback from leaders or people around? Or did you just do it and not ask anybody? Well, a little of both. (laughs) Um, uh, And to be clear, I'm not those. I think there may be one of those YouTube videos I actually shot. We have some good videos out there, and it's not because of me. It's because of Dan Cohen. Dan does a great job with those. I wanted to make sure that if you look at those videos to the extent that they're good, Dan did some, Mm -hmm. some phenomenal work with them. Yeah. But no, I didn't really get get a whole lot of pushback. I think the first ones we did, Dan shot and produced, and we said, wow, we want to share this. Just put it up on YouTube. Uh, Kenny Schnell was the director at the time, and I think after we had gotten you know, like a 1,000 hits on something, I went, hey, Kenny, look at this. <laughs> um, and that was probably the first he knew about it. But one cool. of the reasons I was able to do that is we had a really good working relationship, um, and I knew he wasn't going to have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Even when I, I published a paper in front of God and everybody saying we had a 43% first-pass success rate. So I, I refer to that as, as collectively lifting your skirt and you know showing people you hadn't shaved your legs in a while. Yeah. And that's ugly. And a lot of people don't want to don't show that they're making errors. Vera Vitalani, uh, Dr. Vitalani at MedStar, published a paper showing a really high rate of esophageal intubations. That took a lot of guts. Um, and props to that organization for doing that. There are some dangers. People would say, oh, my God, y'all suck. That could be your conclusion. It's a really short-sighted conclusion. What I think you probably should be doing is going, holy crap, if that's happening to them, it's happening to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guarantee you it is. So you got to take some conclusions from it and realize, hey, we need to put that out there because we owe it to other people uh, to let them know about those mistakes so they can improve. And it did help to show that we improved. I was going to say, did that, you release those publishing. numbers at the same time, the, it, w- the improvements? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did. That's smart. Yeah. So I weaseled out of it. Veer uh, just was flat out brave. When I tell medics, when they talk to me about coming to work at one of your services, I tell them they need to be darn good at 12 leads. Mm-hmm. What happens when a medic calls a STEMI alert and it was it turns out to not be a STEMI. Oh, that's easy. We fire him. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was my smart-ass comment. So what happens? Well, so there are real consequences. If it's in the middle of the night, a cath team comes in, um, and the hospital spends a lot of money. You dramatically increase the chances that the patient's going to have an unnecessary procedure. There's just this diagnostic inertia that happens. So you increase the likelihood of, of other things going on that we don't really want to have happen. The individual medic gets some feedback. 
um, and they add that piece of information to their their collective knowledge base, and hopefully they use that with the, the subsequent call. I can tell you what doesn't happen. They don't ever get a call from me that says, hey, you screwed up. I've certainly called stimmies where cards comes down and thinks it's not a stimmy. I've not called stimmies, and it turns out that it is. I practice medicine, which means I screw some things up. How do you guys educate or continue the education for 12 leads? Do you have? Do you look at actual cases? Mm-hmm. Some interesting things with 12 leads. Um, a 12 lead EKG is a tool. It's a test, and you have to understand why you're asking the test. Um, you're not having chest pain right now, are you? Mm-mm. You don't have any stents. You're reasonably healthy. Mm-hmm. So if I did a 12 lead on you right now and saw a little bit of elevation in a couple of leads, if the only thing we focused on as a system was how to read a 12 lead EKG, there's a decent chance somebody would call a STEMI alert on you. Okay, you're not having a STEMI. I don't need to see an EKG. Mm-hmm. You're not having a STEMI. Um, I don't care what the EKG shows because you're sitting here, you know, nice, healthy, happy, um, with no indication. So my pre-test probability is zero. No matter how good that test is, it's not going to change it. Now, if I see the EKG and it shows STEMI, it may change it to 1%. Still not going to do anything with that. So you, uh, the main thing we focus on here is you need to look at the appropriate clinical context. There's no such thing as an EKG STEMI alone. You have to have the clinical context uh, because it varies what you're going to do with the results. So that's the big thing that we focus on. It. How did we come to that? Well, we looked at um, our overcalls and our undercalls, and we did it systematically. At the time, we weren't getting uh, automated data back from the hospitals. So I went to my hospital where I'm very biased. I think we have some great cardiologists, I and mean, I have a good relationship with them. And I said, listen, I'll, how about I take you all out to dinner. Um, I'll feed you some wine. And what we're going to do is look at actual cases. So I would take the chart, and I would copy the history and physical, 35-year-old male, 85-year-old male, coronary artery disease, no coronary artery disease, what the risk factors are. And it's all cut, copy and pasted right out of the chart. I put that on a slide. And then the next slide is each one of the ECGs. We click through that. Okay, everybody got it? Great. Is this a STEMI? Yes or no? Yes, it is. And we'd write that down. And I had two cardiologists there. They'd write it down. I would write it down. And we would do that independently of what the medic said. And then we tabulated that data, and then we compared it, and we put it into a two-by-two table. Everything good in life can be put into a two-by-two contingency table. And that allowed us to calculate sensitivity, specificity, overcalls, undercalls. And then we identified, okay, what are the, what's our overall numbers? Okay, that's great. We can improve on that. We can set that as our baseline and see if we can improve it. But more interestingly, what are the ones that we did call that the collective physician pool here decided is not a STEMI. When we looked at the EKG alone, we said, well, yes, it so it sort of technically meets the criteria, but no, none of our teeth are sweating. It's not making us nervous. Well, why is that? And that gets incredibly difficult for experienced clinicians to explain. I look at... Um, That's that gestalt you're talking about. Absolutely. And I, I know... When we teach EKGs, we tell people it's not about pattern recognition. You need to learn these steps. Okay, well, it's sort of a lie. Some it's of it is. pattern recognition. Once you know what you're looking at. Exactly. So you do have to, uh, and I'm not trying to, as a as an educator, I'm not trying to you know throw you into the bus, because you never get that gestalt if you don't 
learn the steps yeah. and learn what to do. I don't think in terms of steps. I don't. When I look at an EKG, I don't say, okay, well, is there one P wave and only one P wave for each and every QRS? Are we upright in one? Are we? It's a pattern, and I have about five seconds to look at every EKG. Mm-hmm. I, I interpreted, I don't know, 20, 30 EKGs yesterday mm-hmm. uh, in a nine-hour period. So you just crank through them. Um, and that's why you're able to crank through them. Because you're doing that on a regular basis. Uh, well, yes. And I spent an awful lot of time learning what those rules were. Good point. Yeah. Um, so we said, number one reason we miss is there are subtle criteria that are there, but it is the wrong patient population. Mm-hmm. So we got an EKG on a patient with an ankle injury. Well, why did we do that? Who the hell knows why? Maybe we had a paramedic student we were practicing. Doesn't hurt the patient. Who knows why we were doing it? But it just doesn't match the clinical setting. Or it was left ventricular hypertrophy, or it was um, there were some left bundle branch blocks, but not many. Uh, mostly, it was early repole and LVH. Early repole, in particular, is um, a place that is just a uh, an error waiting to happen. Here's what I would tell paramedics to do with early repole: you've identified this EKG as having early repole. Great. Now do me a favor and take a look at your patient. Is it a patient who is an obese 50 year old male? with extensive coronary artery disease who is complaining of chest pain, call it. Is it a young, healthy person with no chest pain? Do not call it. Mm-hmm. That was the main thing we we learned when we did this experiment. So we, um, we looked at our data and we tried to figure out where things were. And we actually changed the way we approached 12 leads in our uh, system. We used to be very... I guess you'd say academically focused on 12 leads. Well, we want to make sure you're identifying the rate and the rhythm and the uh, axis. And um, we'll talk about Scarbosa criteria and we'll talk about Wellens waves and all of these other things. I kind of call that academic masturbation um, <laughs> because I, it's nice to know information, but it's not going to change what you're going to do with the patient. And what I found is when we're focusing so much on the trees as opposed to the forest, we can tell you whether that's an elm or that's a pine or that's a – we were missing that the patient looked like they were having a STEMI or the yeah. patient didn't. So we've come back on our on our focus now, and what I want to know is how good is the story and then how good is the EKG, and we break both down into strong and weak. So it's a strong story. Well, then you don't have to have the world's strongest EKG. Mm-hmm. If it's a weak story – you probably better have a pretty strong EKG to call it. And we actually did a little two-by-two table because, of course, if it's good, it can fit in a two-by-two table. Strength of the story, strength of the EKG, and that gives you an equation about whether to call it or not. I think one of your medics recounted this thing that you're telling me verbatim on one of my episodes. Our medical director, um, he doesn't want us calling STEMI alerts unless we have a strong story with a strong 12 lead. Right. So if you just ran a 12 lead because they had kind of some vague abdominal pain and it's borderline, that's just not enough. Yeah. Yeah. If both are really vague, you know, I'm probably still going to go to a center that has a cath lab, Yeah. but we're not going to go emergent. What is something you can tell us about when you were an early medic, something that was hard for you, a challenge, area that you had to work on? if you can remember any areas of growth and how you tackled that? So, I mean, they're the obvious things. I couldn't intubate anybody to save my life. It was really challenging for me. Um, But I think probably the, you know, that's kind of boring that uh, everybody deals with that, whether they admit it or not. 
whether it's intubation or IVs, or I still, I hate doing lumbar punctures. It's my least favorite skill, and I'm just not very good at it. I think the thing that's probably a, I think about a lot more now <clears throat> is my relationship to my patients. Uh, when I was a, a new paramedic, um, I went, uh, I was working in a couple of different states as a medic. One of the places I worked, it seemed to be the message I got was it's really cool to have a dismissive attitude about your patients. Uh, they're just here to waste my time. This is an us versus them. This is a war, damn it. And I, boy, did I fall into that. I adopted it. And what I found out was it was, I mean, I was, it was corrupting my soul. And I didn't like what I was doing very much. I mean, I'd, I'd moved to New York specifically because I was dedicated to get a master's in EMS. I This was my career. And I was about to drop out of it because I hated my job. I hated myself. I hated everything about everything. All of my patients were there to manipulate me. They were drug-seeking trolls. And it turns out they really weren't. Mm-hmm. It was That was my um, – that was a big stumbling block I had. Fortunately, I went through – I mean, I think I learned the hard way that, you know, if you actually trust patients and realize they're not calling you to waste your time, they have a problem and they're looking to you to, to help them, my outlook turned around dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, I started liking my job again um, when I really focused on doing that with patients. All of a sudden, they turned out not to be drug-seeking trolls at all. They turned out to be people just like me or my family who had problems that maybe I could help them with, maybe I couldn't, but I could certainly be nice to them. And then all of a sudden, I found out that I was sort of you know, in a much happier place. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lesson I learned from that is it's not just about taking better care of your patients, but if you work on that and make sure you understand that, look, this is not us versus them. This is us together working on a collective problem your life is better. So it's about career preservation. And oh, by the way, you do a better job of medicine. Yeah. Thanks for your candidness on that. That's mm-hmm. a common theme. It is. It, it's, yeah. The question is whether you recognize it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a real, um, I, I think there is a, a place for intervention there. I was fortunate that I figured it out on my own. I think some people don't. And they end up, along with all the other stressors in this uh, field, I think that's one of the uh, contributors to, um, you know, even medics who end up killing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about burnout, I, I think that that is a big component of it. Um, you get yourself into the situation where you're um, hyper cynical and you think everybody's trying to manipulate you. Um, and it's just for it makes for a really crappy worldview. You're not going to survive along that way. To take it to something clinical, I see paramedic students, the first time they learn about pseudo seizures, Mm -hmm. they're really thrilled to know that that's a thing and there's a name for it. And they start wanting to call any seizure. They start wanting to differentiate between pseudo seizures Mm -hmm. and neurological seizures. Sure. Yeah, because and what they're uh, and this is very unfortunate, and it is so sad that it begins in paramedic school. Um, Although I know it does. I mean, it started for me in paramedic school. They're being dismissive. Um, They're dismissing the patient's complaint. Now, maybe it is a psychogenic non-epileptic seizure, um, which is Is that what we call it now. Yeah, there's actually an acronym, and that is the most unfortunate abbreviation ever. Uh, P-N-E-S. Now, you go ahead and say that. <laughs> so we don't say pseudo-seizure. Uh, no, absolutely. We say pseudo-seizure. Yeah, the, we do. The neurologist called them 
uh, these psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Got it. Um, look, I can barely say hypotension and hypoxia. There's <laughs> no way I can say that. I just had to make fun of the acronym. Yeah, the problem, though, is that that in particular, if you get so wrapped up in that they're faking, pseudo-seizures are not fake. And I think that's the thing mm. people need to understand. They are not epileptic seizures. Mm -hmm. It's not an epileptiform seizure. Uh, that doesn't mean they have control over it. Um, and it certainly doesn't mean they're doing it to piss you off. Right. Um, there are some people who do it to seek attention. But that's a, prob that's a problem in itself. It's, oh, sure. I mean, that's their problem. Sure. And it's not yours. Right. And you know what the treatment for that is? I can tell you what it's not. Uh, dismissive condensation. Condensation? Mm -hmm. So just don't get a bunch of liquid, you know, <laughs> condensing over them and forming a cloud. Condens oh, good C God. Condensation? We are so close. Con Condescension. There Condescension. We go. Yes. That, that, the non-cloud form thing. <laughs> That's it. Um, yeah, that doesn't help them. Mm -hmm. um, you know what helps seizures? Benzodiazepines. Turns out, you know what helps pseudo-seizures? <laughs> Benzodiazepines. Well, I've, when I've taught the neuro module, I've told them, like, the great thing is you you don't have to be the neurologist and figure no. it out. Like, don't spend all your time trying to decide if it's epileptic or, or not. Absolutely, that how great like rejoice in the fact that you're Absolutely. not the one that has to solve that riddle and just yep. take care of them it can be really really challenging to tell especially when you truly understand how wide the spectrum of true epileptiform seizure manifestations are mm -hmm. oh my lord the so I can't, I can't let any podcast go without getting my tpa joke in the reason tpa works so well is we give it to people with migraines and seizures uh, and it turns out it works it fixes it um <laughs> There are a lot of seizures that just, I mean, hell, it looked like a stroke. Um, Pseudo-seizures can act the same way. So it can be really hard sometimes to, to tell the difference. Um, you know why neurologists are so good at telling the difference? Because they just all agree that they're right? No. Well, okay, they're the last person in the chart, so by definition. No, they use a freaking EEG. Um, they cheat. <laughs> they, they put a bunch of stickies on their head and they find out. Um, they have a tool that can help them. We don't have that tool. I don't have it in the field. I don't have it in the ER. Right. Um, one thing I do have is a chart. Um, so I can go back and look at prior history. So if they have, if they don't have a history of seizures, they have multiple ED visits for pseudo-seizures, then that increases the likelihood that this is a pseudo-seizure. It doesn't decrease the, or doesn't remove the possibility that it's a real seizure. And I would much rather give a patient pseudo-seizures who is having a pseudo-seizure out of N than not give a patient who is having a an epileptiform seizure nothing. Right. And not have to go through that agony of feeling like you're trying not to be duped. It will wear on yeah, you. Yeah, so what? Yeah. You know what? It's Well, this patient's a drug-seeking troll. Well, guess what? Maybe he is. Mm -hmm. But when I get into arguments and fights with uh, people, I go home miserable. Mm -hmm. I want to go home, and I have a life. I want to go home. I want to talk to my wife. I want to talk to my daughter. I want to talk to my son. When I turn every single patient interaction into a battle because I'm right, they're wrong, they're trying to manipulate me. I have a miserable life. Yeah. So I just don't. That's a good reframe. It's about when I was teaching residents. I would say, look, it's about career preservation. Mm -hmm. I spent uh, when I was a. I went through the whole dark place again as a resident um, because now I have the ability to write narcotics, and now everybody turned into someone who wanted me to to manipulate me and get a prescription for Norco. Um, 
yeah, there are some people that are like that. And there are a lot of people. I mean, I very rarely write a prescription for narcotics anymore. If I have a patient who I think is at risk for either abuse or diversion, um, I can look them up in the system and I can see that they have a lot of different narcotic prescriptions from a lot of different physicians. I'm just not going to write them a prescription. Um, But I see a lot of my uh, fellow doctors who turn that into a war and they go in and they have this this escalated fight. It's just not worth it for me. I, I want to enjoy my life. So I, I'm still not going to write the prescription. And I said, look, I, you know, I don't think this is in your best interest, and I'm not going to write the prescription. Well, you have to. Sir, I, I don't have to, and I'm not going to. Um, further discussion doesn't seem to be going anywhere, so I'm, I'm going to walk out now. Um, no fight, no nothing. Um, and it turns out that the number of fights I've gotten into about that has dr- dramatically decreased when I consciously decided to stop being a dick about it. Yeah. Like I can't think of the last time. I got into an argument about it. Just don't be a dick. Boy, that like one life lesson. Don't go swimming after you eat and don't be a dick. <laughs> we'll just end there. there you go. Life advice Wash from Dr. Hands. Jarvis. Wash your hands. <laughs> thanks, Jeff. You bet. Thanks a lot, Jim. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of Medic Mindset. I have a face for radio. <laughs> I so wish I'd come up with that on my own.